Hello and welcome to the Blind Spot Podcast with Benjamin Weeb, a classic film podcast. Today with me I have Aaron White, otherwise known as on the Feeling Film Podcast, and uh, please introduce yourself to the people. Thanks, man. I'm excited to be here. We met on a draft, movie draft, a couple of them actually, over the course of the summer, and this is good stuff. I, I love kind of getting outside my wheelhouse and especially getting to cover films that I have not talked about on my podcast, which is very long running. And so sometimes it's harder to find them, but this is a case where I get to participate in your concept right along with you. And I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much. So this week we're going to end up talking about Punch Drunk Love, uh, a Paul Thomas Anderson film. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about what we've seen and uh, yeah. What's, what have you been watching lately, Aaron? Well, since it's so fresh in my mind, I'm going to go ahead and uh, talk about something that just came out as of the week that we're recording this. It's a documentary called Escape from Kabul, and I'm not oh. sure it's going to get a lot of press. And so I'm trying to like boost the signal. I'm hoping to have an interview with the director up as well on my channel uh, here shortly. But the documentary essentially is covering the events of last year, August 2021. I don't know if you remember this, but the U.S. was pulling troops out of Afghanistan. Trump had said we were going to leave. President Biden set like a hard deadline of August 31st. And so early August, they go over there. They land at Kabul. They're thinking they're just going to evacuate a few handfuls or just a small amount of Afghan supporters who had helped the Americans during the war. Well, right before they get there, the Taliban roll in and take Kabul. And the people of Kabul mass exodus to the airfield because they all want to leave. And there are some famous photos that came out from this event last summer of just stacks of people on top of each other in these C-130s just trying and just airfields covered with humans, which if you think about you can't land a plane on an airfield if mm -hmm. you can't take off if there's people on it. And so this covers about a two and a half week period from oh, man. making the decision to go in to coming out. And what I really love about this particular documentary and what was so gripping is it felt a lot to me almost like Black Hawk Down because it's like a ticking clock and mm -hmm. it's – pretty much all composed of archival footage. There's a ton of cell phone camera footage, which I think is really cool that we live in a digital age where, you know, you could legitimately have so many different angles and so many different perspectives from just different people's cell phones. Uh, but it also has like some drone footage and some other stuff clearly from the military, some video that was taken, but then it's intermixed with three different, ongoing sequences of interviews and it's got the the military side so they're talking about things that were happening from their perspective it's got afghan citizens talking about things from their perspective mm -hmm. i'm guessing it's people who actually got out and then it has a whole bunch of interviews from the taliban from oh, taliban wow. commanders and it is it's it's just both fascinating and infuriating to be honest, because sometimes they're laughing. Sometimes they're talking about killing Americans and they're literally grinning and, and getting a kick out of like talking about their tactics. They're, they're laughing about the way that they slaughtered Afghan citizens. And 
I really appreciated the difference of perspectives in that, you know, they're, they're talking about this event from being a pursuer, a, a pursuing combatant. And it was just really unlike anything I'd ever seen because you really truly felt like you got the whole picture. You, the American military is very honest about their mistakes, which was mm-hmm. kind of shocking. A lot of times documentaries will, you know, gloss over some things just in order to like highlight the heroic part of the final act. And that's not what this did. It, it definitely, it doesn't really even celebrate. It just, it says, you know, listen, there was an amazing thing that got accomplished. It was the biggest evacu- evacuation in the history of the U S but here's what we lost in the process. Here's mm-hmm. who didn't make it and why. And so, so I highly recommend it. It's, it's on HBO max and HBO streaming now. And I, I'm afraid it's just going to, just slide right by people's radar unless I talk about it nonstop. So appreciate the chance. Yeah, to do no, that. no, for sure. I mean, I feel like this is like the third HBO documentary and docu series I've heard about this year. They've done, had a lot of good stuff. They had the anarchists who I got to interview the director of. Oh, cool. Which was an interesting little, uh, jaunt into um, like a five year project of looking at a bunch of, uh, American individuals who uh, ended up going to Anarchapulco, or no, uh, Alcapulco, New Mexico, and established Anarchapulco. And the documenter, uh, journalist, uh, Todd Schramp, he went and essentially attended their various events, uh, just trying to get like, oh, is this something really happening? And the second year he was down there, um, he had a lot of interview opportunities. And in the interim before the third year, uh, one of the people that was in the documentary died. Uh, it was like uh. a main event where their death was sparked by this feud between two separate sides in this. And it made for a really interesting watch on HBO. Um, and it's like pretty like I would consider polit- apolitical. It's mm-hmm. really well done journalism um, in that it just allows events to display and to show another side of culture and drama that isn't what we typically think of with anarchy. But that was really good. That was like a month and a half ago. Um, What I've actually seen this week is a movie called Pearl. Everyone's talking about on Twitter. Yeah. Everyone should be talking about on Twitter. It's much like uh, Punch Drunk Love. I think it's a challenging uh, film to grab your story around. It's You kind of have to set your bearings. (laughs) It's not a rom-com. Sadly, no. It is actually what I'd consider a mix of a comedy and a horror film combined. If you've seen X, I think it'll be a lot harder to watch and get comedy out of because you already have the knowledge of who Pearl becomes, the main character. Going into it without X, as I did, is a hilarious time. It commits to golden age Hollywood technicolor filmmaking, unlike anything else. The opening credits is like in the font of something like a wizard of Oz. I don't know what the actual font title is, but it's in that way. It's got the classical score. Um, the way we open with Pearl, she's got a Southern farm girl accent and she's talking to her cows about wanting to leave. And if you squint your eyes, you can think, man, it's Dorothy talking about leaving Kansas with Toto. And it, it immediately genre flips as a goose enters this farm that's not supposed to be there, she grabs a pitchfork and kills it. And the gore in here ramps up over time. It's a slasher film that gets gory in the third act, but for the most part tries to stay really just underneath the golden age film. 
and it makes for a really fun time where there's so much camp that scenes become very funny that probably weren't. And then when you get to the end, it's like, oh, shit, I can't believe what's happened. And it goes full art film. Uh, T. West and Mia Goth are on fire this year with this and X. And yeah, I really can't recommend it enough. If you like horror, I will throw in the caveat of if you haven't seen X, this film, while it can be pretty fun, might be a little hard to fully understand. It's an interesting character study, but mixing in Golden Age cinema with horror is really challenging because Golden Age cinema is very much the main character is the good person whose journey we're here to celebrate. And horror is not. No. <laughs> and and uh, they clash in a way that I think adds depth to the film and makes it really sit with you. You have to really wrestle through it. But without X, it's really hard to get a compass on what is this really saying? Who is our protagonist here? What's mm-hmm. really going on? Um, but it's like a wonderful masterwork of just how to do filmmaking and to mix genres and Oh man, Mia Goth is so good in the film. I could talk your ears off. Just she has monologues that are perfectly done. She switches characters almost between uh, Pearl the Southern girl with dreams to Pearl the horror monster on a dime. And there's been a few clips running around on Twitter, and they just like people might like get like a huh, what is this movie? This seems like odd. This is a interesting clip. But in context, it is so impressive to watch. And the last frame of this is amazing. Everybody, that's what I keep hearing as well. I keep hearing it's like there's a great monologue towards the end by Goth. And that what a great like last name for a horror act, so you know, true. An actress, right? But, but and then I mean, I, I don't mean to like draw the parallel necessarily, but it just it kind of they kind of go together. And then they really do. That last scene, everybody, all my fellow critics came out of the screening going, like, just talking about that, the moment that it ended on. Yeah, Not a it's impressive. Myself, so we'll see. You, yeah. You're, you're kind of selling me on it. I'll be, I'll be honest. You're, you're making me consider it with the whole golden age explanation. Cause I don't watch a lot of trailers. And so I hadn't, I kind of know about, knew about it and a little bit about it, what it was going to be, but that was a great way of explaining it. And it got me, yeah, got my interest peaked. Yeah, no, and I mean, this is the thing. I haven't seen a lot of trailers for it. I went into it completely blind, knowing that X came out. I think it's related to it, or at least I thought it was more of a thematic trilogy, kind of like the Red, White, and Blue, where people were comparing it to X, and I was like, oh, so they're like slashers, made it about six months apart. Cool. Both small-developed A24 films, hence the comparisons, not knowing it was a prequel until after seeing it, which really challenged me knowing it but yeah it is is absolutely a a golden age love letter infused with a horror film that like if you want to learn filmmaking craft 100 percent recommend but let's move on let's talk about the main show today punch drunk love by paul thomas anderson aaron uh did you see this film before your viewing for this podcast i did not this was my first oh. time. This is a, one of my bigger blind spots. Wonderful. As is mine. I ask you this because some people in future episodes will have seen the film beforehand. But I want to ask 
How did you find out about the film? You say it's a bigger blind spot. What does that mean to you? And what was your expectations going in? Well, uh, so I'm well aware of it just because of it being so highly regarded. And that's kind of where I put it in that big blind spot category would be movies that are considered either classical favorites, like literal classical age type favorites or movies from esteemed directors that have almost a consensus amount of praise about them. And this is one of those. All I've ever known about it is that it's Adam Sandler's first people said it was Adam Sandler's first serious role and that he was excellent in it and that it was a rom-com. And Mm -hmm. those two things sound fantastic to me. And I, you know, I've enjoyed PTA and I, and I, even the movies that I don't like from PTA or I've never not liked a movie, but the movies that I haven't loved, he is much like you were just talking about. He is such an incredible filmmaker that it is impossible to not know that you are witnessing masterwork and craft, even if you don't get on the same wavelength as the movie emotionally or you know, from an enjoyment standpoint. And so that's really what I knew going in. And I I kind of predicted and assumed that I would just absolutely love it because I am such an enormous rom-com fan. All right. Doesn't like horror, but likes rom-com ladies. Yes. I'm just saying (laughs) it's Aaron white and much like, (laughs) and there we go. Yeah. See, much like you actually, I hadn't seen the film. I had heard a lot of acclaim for it, especially post-2019 with Uncut Gems. Adam Sandler was getting a lot of praise for that film, and people were drawing a lot of comparisons between that and Punch Drunk Love, because they're both his more serious roles that he's really good in. Um, I knew that. I knew it was a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. This is my first Paul Thomas Anderson movie, so I had no benchmark on what to expect. Um, I've heard his name a lot of times. I've got some friends who were really recommending licorice pizza to me and i was like man i really think this would be my thing i didn't get to see it in theaters because it played for a week where i live and then since then i haven't been able to find a copy of the film really to watch so i was like all right well this is a good opportunity as ever to get into that filmography um and yeah i knew those two things i knew it had a lot of twitter acclaim and i was like all right let's hop in knew it was a romance movie didn't know it was a comedy. And it shaped okay. a lot of my experience with the film. I bet. <laughs> I think I think it, it, it. this is much like a Doctor Strangelove movie of if you don't know it's a comedy, you'll think this is a really funny line, but I don't know if I should be laughing right now. Mm-hmm. Or this is kind of like interesting, a little odd, a little quirky, but I don't know if this is really a full butt gut buster. And if you're with someone else who's laughing, it's like, oh, it's supposed to be that. I didn't have that. So this film felt... Kind of a little bit super serious at times, and I was like, "Huh, this is weird. I don't, I don't know what's happening entirely. I feel like I'm gauging this as I go along." And then it was around uh, about like two thirds of the way through when Adam Sandler and Emily Watson's character finally actually uh, get together in Hawaii, and they're talking about how they want to smash each other's faces in with like a sledgehammer. And then I was like, "Oh, this is a rom com." And it took me like way too long to figure it out, which is both very funny and a little sad in some ways. 
So I had a very similar experience, honestly, because I because I went into it expecting a traditional rom com. So mm-hmm. that's not what we get. It, it takes no. at least half the movie before we begin any sort of rom cominess. Like it is weird. It, it it is very Paul Thomas Anderson. So the whole like first act and setup, the quirky weirdness of it and just the way that it, it really is putting i mean you're i know what the movie is doing and so i i'm experiencing it in two very different ways simultaneously i'm my brain is able to process because i've seen so much tom paul, paul thomas anderson's stuff i can see what he's attempting and that barry is express you know expressing to us anxiety and vulnerability and loneliness and the score is doing a lot of the legwork in really trying to the, the score Very and the, the bouncing of camera work. Um, there's a lot of like different handheld versus set shots that you can tell are intentional. And there's just this anxiety build in the movie. I actually was immediately like, whoa, this thing really does is a precursor to uncut gems when you see that first act, especially, and then also the third act. And I, it was hard because I was being taken out of it because that's, it's not the kind mm-hmm. of quirky I like. Like when a person walks out to a street and sees an incredibly violent car crash just tumble down the, and then <laughs> this harmonium gets dropped off on the side of the sidewalk and he's just like, huh, that's weird. I'm going to go back inside and drink my coffee. I, I don't resonate with that. To me, I, my brain just can't be like, oh, that was funny and ha ha and let's move on. And so I get hung up on it. And so it was mm-hmm. it was tough for me to get into it, man. And there was... There were definitely moments that I enjoyed and scenes that I liked, but the cohesiveness of it, I, ooh, it's, I'm just not, I don't know if I'm the target audience. Yeah. See, for me, it was very similar. It almost had, I see, I watched heat recently and I watched a bit of collateral recently. Both of those films have a lot of long sequences with cars and looking at highways in LA. And I was like, Oh, I like this is setting up a vibe car crashes and flips by and it's like, holy shit, that's not this movie. What am I? Oh God, I don't know what's happening. And just, I feel like it really plays into that, that title of punch drunk love. Like it really a little on the nose, double meaning here, but there's a lot of violence and violence isn't fun in this. It is, it is kind of funny in ways afterwards, but it's like, suddenly boom it's there like violence appears out of nowhere and then when it leaves it's like it never was there which is definitely one of the idiosyncratic pieces of this that make it both really well regarded and make it a little hard to watch the first time i know for me when i was also looking at it and reading about it and it was like oh like idiosyncratic why have i heard that word before oh yeah that that other um uh what is it um Wes Anderson, the other Anderson, uh-huh. Wes Anderson. Yeah. The other Anderson. I'm like very much similar ideas in this dark comedy. Their style is very much kind of similar in their editing kind mm-hmm. of in the way they tell stories, but visually very different. This is much more in the scope of almost like a normal rom-com romantic comedy where it's like the camera occasionally does a quirky thing, but most of the time it's following action. There's not really mm-hmm. any distinct framing. Which is uniquely Paul Thomas Anderson, but also like very different if only time you've witnessed this type of movie 
is with Wes Anderson, his very clear visual style. Yeah, um, I think the the camera work here, like I, I was mentioning, is really to me, it's not about like cinematography as you normally think of it as framing of scenes. Um, we we like to amplify like the every frame of painting idea of oh, this is the perfect angle. That's what Wes Anderson is all about. Symmetry is what I like about his cinematography because I I'm a I'm a just crazy person for for symmetry, and yet here the camera is all about trying what it does is it gets you in the headspace like to me this whole movie is about being in barry's headspace it's about i almost and if any listeners are out there please don't take offense to this because this is just my observation as someone who's watching it and i don't know enough about this topic but i almost feel like he is presenting like an autistic spectrum kind of a a personality from from people that i've known in my life i feel that level of just uneasiness about him and and he's incredibly smart like when he sits down at the scene with them at the date right at dinner Mm -hmm. and he's so reluctant he's so nervous and he's afraid to get vulnerable why because like he has seven sisters who do nothing but yell at him and call him names and it's 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 sad how people Mm -hmm. treat him but like he when he finally has the ability to get vulnerable and he's explaining his plan with the pudding and he's like doing all the math and it really feels almost like that to me, mm-hmm. like a person who is just a little bit stuck in their own head at times. And yeah. Someone it's hard for him to find something to like bring him out. Yeah, that exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I noticed it really quickly because like I know a few people who are also very smart, but have a lot of social anxiety and don't understand social nervous very well. Right. And it's so much of watching this is finding someone lonely who doesn't understand when he's getting scammed or um, doesn't know really how to be a salesperson, even though that's his job, which is really one of those things that I think to bring this a little bit bigger focus, it's something that's very funny, but also very real. And I haven't seen a lot of other stuff from Paul Thomas Anderson, but I feel like that is the humor here where things can be both funny and very real and sincere. And it can make it a little bit hard to understand, is this actually a joke? Is this supposed to be funny? Right? And I feel like that's so much of the comedy that it can be off-putting until, like, you start seeing more of the craziness outside of just Barry. I think back to the first scene when he starts getting... when um, His employee... Uh, oh, shoot. Luis I like Guzman? His name was Rico. Lance? Lance, yeah, when Lance the, the is co-worker, like, yeah, <laughs> the coworker's like, "Hey, you got your sister online too?" And then he picks up the phone, and answers it, and he's like, "Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm coming yeah, to the yeah. party." <laughs> yeah, and then and then it happens again. I was like, "Man, this sister's really just, you know, a little like all the time with him." You know, they all the sisters kind of sound the same on the phone, and then the sister arrives at the shop, and it's like, "My goodness, they really need to get together." And he's like, "Oh, I have seven sisters," and I'm like you kind of doubt it a little bit because they all sound very similar on the phone. And it's like, hmm, does he, or is he just saying this because he's a sale person and he's like trying to hide that fact, you know, that he's mm-hmm. keeps having to be called away. And then you go to the party and it is seven sisters. And it's like, okay, that's really funny and creative. And also I feel the anxiety now so much more whenever he gets a phone call and it's a sister because they're always talking with each other. And yet they never seem to really be talking with each other. Like, they keep asking him the same questions, meaning they're coordinated, but they also um, 
don't really take each other's word for it very often, which is really yeah. weird and uh, pretty funny, but also a little stressful. And I think this walks that line well, but like anything that walks a line really well, it can take a while to notice it. Yeah, he's very, I mean, um, he's on edge. Like they are, they are piling on him at all times. And so you're feeling his journey of this. He's he's looking for this emotional connection, the whole movie. Like, obviously that's why we have the whole subplot of him calling the one 900 number is because he always wants someone to connect to. He does in the very opening scene when he's talking to some customer, he's like, I can give you my home phone number. And the guy's like, no, I'm good. I, I got your work number. And he's like, yeah, but time zones. Like he, he is so desperate for connection and it is really weird and hard to watch <laughs> to go through this like mm-hmm. period of trying to find someone that he can let go of these anxieties f- from mm-hmm. and be able to commit himself to and and allow himself to be open with and vulnerable and it's and not think he's just going to get hurt again and it's yeah. it's a wild I, ride yeah i mean i think back to um when he's finally called the sex line and he almost doesn't really it, his approach to it doesn't seem like he's really wanting any pleasure he just wants someone to connect to and it's so well done in that this one through line has been established perfectly that he's really lonely and just craving connection but also not wanting to be vulnerable his sisters he goes to a party with his sisters and they immediately are like oh do you remember that one time you threw a hammer through a window right and his he's constantly like trying to cover up everything that or maybe not cover up but like shelling himself off from that vulnerability from being that emotionally honest self and it impacts everything he does and he interacts with people at arm's length and yet wants to keep reaching out to them when they're finally going which is probably one of the rawest depictions of that social anxiety and it's a it's very impactful to me and it really makes it stand out why people are like adam sandler's serious role here is really good. He's able to be funny in sequences where like, even if he's like, Oh, I can cry out of nothing. And then like starts crying, which is framed very funnily. I was like, this is shot. Like it's, it's a serious moment, but it is pretty funny. Um, and, and it just walks that line really well. And yeah, I want to ask like, how did you find the performances in general here? I mean, I think his performance is phenomenal. I think he's, as good as he's ever been in the movie, it's not my favorite movie. I don't love the movie. So there's a level of like, you know, I'm going to rank them. If I'm ranking them, I'm going to go with movies I like better, but as opposed, you know, comparatively to like an uncut gems, it's obviously a little bit more on the comedy side than that one. That one definitely leans full serious. The comedy there is, not intentional comedy. It is like anxious comedy. And this has a little more intentional comedy, but I think it's almost, it's a brilliant casting because if you think about when this film came out, 
early 2000s, right? This is kind of the height of 2002, at height of Adam Sandler's reign. And I was alive. I was in my early 20s. I was rewatching Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore and the Waterboy on repeat, right? During this time period. And this is almost like taking that character and deconstructing it because Mm -hmm. you could feasibly put the same character in this movie and they almost always have like an underlying fit of rage about them somewhere bubbling that social awkwardness. And you just, it's, it's almost like you could, you could just see it being that same character. There's just a tinge more of the seriousness to him that, allows him to like hit a different level and it, it just works. I mean, I think it is wonderful. No one else stood out to me, frankly. I didn't think anything else. I would also I, I honestly, I don't buy the relationship and that's part of my problem with it. But I, but I think watching Adam Sandler himself is mesmerizing to me going through the film. Mm-hmm. Actually, I will throw one person that I think is also very good in this. That's Jesse Plemons. I think Jesse Plemons. Oh, um, Hoffman. I'm sure. Or, I'm yeah, sure. sure. I'm sure. Philip. Yeah, Seymour yeah, yeah, yeah. Hoffman. Yeah. Philip. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman <laughs> is very funny in this role. Where I'm like, yeah. you know what? This is actually the only other character, aside from Sandler himself, that I fully believe right. is committed <laughs> to this, and it helps that they're both fragile, angry people to an extent, yeah. or maybe not like like. A, Adam Sandler's character less so, but still has that emotional fragility, right? Whereas Seymour has it much more frequently, or Seymour Hoffman. And it's just mind-boggling. When they finally get to talk at each other, it's very funny. And I'm like, ah, now I can fully see that comedy side come out. But up to that point, Emily Watson's pretty fine in this, but she just doesn't have a lot. It feels like she's kind of there as a catalyst. Um, to watch the journey through and as an endpoint goal, but not really as a relational individual, right? I mean, we learn basically everything yep. we will about her at the start when she's like, yeah, you know, I saw your picture and I, I wanted to get to know you. I think you look, you know, cute, right? And there's not a lot of depth there, but I think it really lends a lot of power to the other plot lines, um, you mentioned the subplot where he calls the 1-800 number and ends up talking on the phone with a sex worker, which is a scam. And I think it's interesting to me because the Criterion edition doesn't have this as quote unquote a subplot. They consider that to be the main plot of the film and the romance is a part of it, but almost, again, as more of a driving force towards the end. And... I think that also really impacts how you view the film, right? Uh, when I watched it and we get to that, that scene where he finally calls the number, it's like, this is an interesting scene, but I, I don't really know what it's doing yet. I feel like it's conveying things we already know. And then when it builds off, it's like, oh man, like this is becoming the main point of the film to an extent, uh, this idea of having to reconcile your past to enter a new relationship to some extent. I think there's a lot of interesting things there that push uh, Barry's growth, the character, forward. Um, But yeah, it definitely feels weirdly plotted and structured. And like, I think this is where I want to kind of talk about a little bit of the idiosyncratism in it. 
because this film is very idiosyncratic. It's very weirdly structured. There are entire transitions that are just red and blue colors fading in and out. And I don't know entirely how I feel about it, where much like you, I'm like, this is a very structured film that isn't a standard rom-com. This isn't, uh, you've got mail. Um, this is very much its own thing and it makes it have value and intrigue and it really lends credibility to the performances from Adam Sandler or performance, right? But it, it feels odd and just interesting in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think this is just PTA. He likes to do different things from a filmmaking angle. Like he, he doesn't do straightforward. <laughs> That's he just very rarely does what you would expect from an A to B plot. And it's in service of experiential type of feelings, I think is what he's going for. And so when you are going through these different phases of the color changes and the music and the score, they're trying to walk you through Barry as he navigates this crazy headspace that he's always in, whether it's the vulnerable and reserved side, the sheepishness, whether it's the rage that's coming out of him, whether it's the clearly starting to kind of have feelings for someone's side. Like the, the great scene of him dancing in the supermarket is just, it's completely weird in the structure of the film. Like it's just out of nowhere, kind of like its own little thing. But like that moment says so much about where he is at mentally in that moment. And it just is always taking you, I think through his deeply into his POV and he likes his fanciful tricks. And, and, and a lot of people love it. A lot of people eat this stuff up and if you are the type of person who just likes straight plot, it can be harder to stay with it. I think it can be distracting. Maybe that's the right word. Cause that's how I feel through some of this is mm -hmm. I get that way a little bit about it. I, I know that there's more meaning to it though. And so I will always appreciate that just from a person who loves film in general, whether I connect with one or not, I guarantee that the color changes the palettes that we see like Barry's tie changes. I want to say five or six times throughout this. There's undoubtedly got to be a reason for that. And I bet you there are essays mm -hmm. out there that break down. Well, Barry's in a blue suit. And when we first see him, there's the blue wall and then, you know, and it changes as we go his, his tie color. It's almost like it's, it's based on his mood and his progressive progression of his character emotionally. And I, I bet you all of those things have intentionality behind them. I just, didn't care enough about the characters personally to want to pick up on that and have it be meaningful. Uh, but I bet you that there are people who will see that and it probably adds a lot of value to the story for them. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even catch that. This is the other thing. I think the colors are really vibrant and always on display. Uh, you have mm -hmm. uh, Barry's, blue suit compared to um i think uh elena elena's uh red dress and characters constantly basically don't really change their outfits very frequently like 
where they start and what costume they're in is going to relatively be the same throughout the entire film. You might notice like a few changes here or there, but I didn't even catch that. Like the ties change frequently. I was like, just, I guess to me, I was a little more enthralled by its performance and finding where the story went to notice it. And it's those layers of meaning that definitely have a lot of people entranced, right? That say, yes, I want to revisit this film. There's so much more to pull from it. And I think most of that's pretty true. I think there is a lot to pull from this on a repeat viewing. I mean, the score alone and the sound mix is stellar. Um, I love that it constantly brings back in um, the basically voices of the uh, phone line and the workers. And it really adds anxiety and stress and it's hypnotic in a way that kind of feels comfortable, but in an anxiety way where it's like, oh, the voices are constant, but at least they're like kind of, I get, I know when they're there only when we get back to the harmonic harmonica, um, harmonium, harmonica, I think is what it's called. They, yeah. I don't know. I think it's called a harmonium. Yeah. A harmonium. There we go. Only when we get to that and we get his playing of the music that the score allows that to take center stage and the voices leave and the anxiety leaves. And it's a really small moment, but it feels really meaningful. Yep. And it's, it's in many ways, I'm like, this is beautiful filmmaking and it's like really well directed. It's got some really fun comedic chops and there's a lot of like, just out of left field gags where it's like he dances in a supermarket. He's going in a supermarket and looking at stuff and it's like played with a complete sincerity that it becomes funny. Similar in a way to something like the Fast and the Furious whenever Dom says family. It's like he's so seriously committed to this that it's very funny. Let's keep going, Vin Diesel, you know? And yeah, like that works so well and those gags just appear. And I find the violence sometimes to be extremely funny where it's like you have this unassuming guy and then he punches something. And it's like when he shatters things around other people, it's like, you know, I don't know if like, I understand what it means, but I don't find that funny. And then the four guys come out of the truck to beat him up and he starts walking out and he clocks the guy in the face and then he grabs the crowbar. And I'm like, this is and very And then he gives violent. it back to a guy. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, that's and he gives it back to a guy. He like hands it in there and you're like, what's he doing? Is he pointing at the guy? And he's like, he just holds it there. And finally the guy's like, do I take it? Yeah, that's one of my favorite gags, that part. That gag, there's the sight gag of him have on the telephone line and then walking away and holding the telephone the entire time. Yeah. And you don't hear the cord snap in the sound mix. It just follows after him and you're like man that's a really long cord and then he gets far enough out of the like he's no, it's no longer a mid close-up so you can see the dangling cord behind him and i'm like that is extremely funny and it's those really small moments that make me think yeah you know i should probably go in lighter next time i watch this mm-hmm. i feel like i went in and it, it doesn't help the last time i did an episode i watched silence of the lambs oh uh, yeah big difference which is not a funny movie no it's a very good movie that's a film I unabashedly love, mostly because it's my type of movie. A serial killer thriller. Mm, I'm already intrigued. <laughs> they have to inquire another serial killer to stop the current serial killer, and in their way, he might get out. Ooh, mm, 
yes, give me the yeah, $100 million, please. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, but here, it's very much a different thing. And it is not dead serious. It is very serious looking and shot seriously to be funny. And I, I really do believe that, like, watching this with other people, I will... Because I'm pretty sure I will revisit this film. I <laughs> don't know if it's 100% my speed, but it's interesting enough that I think it kind of fits along with, like, a 2001 A Space Odyssey, where I'm like, I don't know I fully understood this film. I need to give it another chance. And it seems like a film that watching with other people for a first-time reaction would be great. And there's a lot of interesting discussion about its portrayal of social anxiety and possibly the autism spectrum and neurodivergence. There's a lot of good discussion about like relationships, finding fulfillment in that being emotionally vulnerable. And they're all themes and topics that I think are still very relevant, if not more relevant now than when the film was made. And I think that lends a lot of credibility to it. And to top it all off, you got Adam Sandler giving a very, very, very good performance in a role that definitely fits in with what he's typically typecast as, but with a script that treats it seriously and doesn't just treat him as a goofball um, for, you know, a quick two laughs. Yeah, absolutely. So, I don't what know. Do make, what do you make of the rage? Because this is one of the things. I don't know if you've seen the show, Barry. Have you seen the TV show, Barry, on HBO? I have not seen the TV show, Barry. I saw the clip of uh, the motorcycle chase that was making the rounds on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Which is also so, very funny. Yeah. So this is – it's Bill Hader, and he, he's a serial killer. Well, he's not a serial killer. He's okay. an assassin, I should say. Sorry. that Very different things. He's an assassin, an ex-military specialist who has become an assassin. And every time they use his name in this movie, Barry, 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 obviously this came way before that TV show. I just could not stop drawing parallels between like violent outbursts that these two characters both <clears> share <throat> and the same name. And one of my drawbacks, the things that keep me from really embracing this movie, even beyond its quirkiness, which is just something I don't think I'll ever fully be on board with, but it's the way that we see Barry as clearly having a problem with rage. And I feel like the movie, the scripts, PTA wants us to see it as a consequence of the way he's been treated due to his anxiety. And it's just a natural, mm -hmm. like it's just his reactions, him trying to deal with it. And by the end, I think we're supposed to believe that that is being suppressed because he's found love. And I find that problematic. <laughs> and I, I know this is not, a deep drama that I guess, you know, it's not meant to like go deeper into it, but it, it, it just feels like it doesn't actually address that. And it plays it all for laughs. Mm -hmm. And and part of me is going, dude, you just like destroyed a bathroom. And yeah, we get this somewhat funny scene where you're straight up lying to the guy because you don't want to ruin your date. But can we talk about the real problem here? The real problem is not, it's just, it, there's more to the, your problems than just that you can't get a girlfriend and you can't be emotionally vulnerable. The, you just, destroyed a bathroom and you couldn't be honest about it and you got yourself kicked out and you your sisters upset you and so your way of dealing with that was to destroy the windows in a house like there's an issue here that is beyond mm -hmm. something that is solved by a cutesy sweet really awesomely shot 
wonderful accidental embrace and running into each other and kiss scene, you know? And, and I felt like it just wasn't being fair enough to that aspect of the character that he created. Mm-hmm. Um, it it kind of it, it had me a little bit of arm's length because of that by the end. But uh, yeah, I mean, that I don't know. I just wonder, what did you feel any of that? Or am I on my little I, island? <laughs> I felt a lot of that. No, for sure. I feel like it is hard not to feel that in this film, right? I mean, we spend so much time with Barry. And yeah, I definitely had a few moments where I was like, Barry? Like, you mean the TV show Barry? Like, it 100% hit me the same way, because I know a little bit about the show. I haven't seen any of it, but I know some of the tropes from Twitter, and like, violence is a core part of that. And I didn't know he was an assassin, but I'm like, yeah, I feel like there is a bit of this that feels very much similar. Um, And yeah, not addressing the violence at all is very weird to me. I think... On one hand, it does make for some decent gags, but it does hold it back, especially like when it's sometimes just so left on its own, where, as I mentioned earlier, this is a film that seems to be tackled, or maybe not seems, but um, has uh, fragile masculinity under a lens, right? I don't think it's deconstructing that idea, and... I feel like this very much is a PTA thing of including elements that people might consider problematic and not investigating them deeper. Um, A lot of people talk about licorice pizza in the same way, right? Where it's like, there's a lot of casual racism there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, you do do. And it's not addressed and it's just left in the script and maybe not glorified in the same way as this, where it kind of is like, Oh, this is a funny thing. Um, but it's just there and it's never interrogated. And I I don't, I haven't seen enough of PTA's other works to get a full idea on where he might sit on these topics, but it definitely is an element that can be hard to f- really understand while it's nice to be able to have a moment of comeuppance where he finally does beat up the people who've been trying to beat him up the entire time and kidnapped him. It's odd to me that his confrontation with the person running the entire scheme is like moderately peaceful. Yeah, it's the least. Where it's violent. like, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, it's the least violent. It's, it's just a bunch it's of a classic Batman. Back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's the classic Batman. You know, oh, I had to kill thirty thugs to get here, but you there, you causing all this problem. Yeah, I'm going now. Leave I'm you non-violent. Alive. <laughs> I can't yeah. kill you. I can't kill you. But your but your hired peoples. Oh yeah, they're on the chopping block today. Yeah. Um. And while that is seen as very funny, it is definitely something that maybe hasn't aged the wellest. I don't even know if it was really ever um, in culture appropriate, really, to just have a rageful character and not address it. But it definitely does feel odd. I think, for me, just the entire way this was shot and coming into it, and especially opening with a massive act of violence where it's like sudden and impactful. It kept me from really laughing at these moments. And I always thought like, there's definitely more here. And the idea that he needs to get a shrink, but he doesn't want to talk about it really feels like it does play into that idea of the fragile masculinity of, I don't want anyone knowing I have a problem. I don't have a problem, even though I do. And if I do want to get it addressed, which maybe I should, 
I can't have anyone knowing. Otherwise, right. I look weak. Right? I think there's that idea here. And I think the first step to understanding all of this is by finding someone you can't, or yeah, finding someone you can be emotionally honest with, typically a therapist and especially yourself. Right? And in this case, it takes the form of Lena. Right. Um, I don't think it would end up leaving to a really well long-term relationship um, fundamentally just because those underlying behaviors, if not treated at all, are going to end up taking different forms uh, typically of uh, abuse. Yeah, that's well, that's but not that's I not the also, thing with it, it's supposed to be a rom-com, right? It's supposed to be romantic. And it, it's to me, like we talked about, like there's very little – there's only a, a couple of scenes of them even remotely being romantic with each other or engaging in getting to know each other. And it leaves me concerned that you are now putting your entire hopes of being a normal person into the bucket of this other human being. And I mean, I'm so, I, I guess I've lived a life. I've been through two divorces. I have these experiences that I can't help but go. I've been there in a way and that's not healthy. Like you can't, it, put mm -hmm. your expectations onto someone else. Like it's it's good for them to help you. Like you just said, if if it was her helping him navigate these changes and deal with his rage and be able to become more vulnerable and seek some counseling as well, and like there was a more robust ending to this beyond just a ah, we're gonna stay together. And they I lived happily you. ever after. Yeah, but that's what I get the vibe of, and I, and that's where it's just I'm a little empty with that ending in their mm -hmm. relationship overall. Even even though it's so perfectly made, <laughs> all the way through. it's the script. Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson and his scripts. That's always been my issue. Is not they're not always quite there for me. Mm -hmm. And I I actually don't fully disagree with you on this. This is a script that I think there's a lot there, and I think there's a lot of ideas and. This is one of those ideas he does not interrogate, and it doesn't sour the film for me entirely, but it definitely leaves a mark where I'm like, I'm intrigued to see if he were to make another film in, like, I almost want to see where he would go in a sequel, even though I don't really care that much for a sequel in a standard way. I just want to know, how do you approach this issue that would present itself, right? Um the forgiveness itself, like the, it, it almost feels very second or I guess ending of a rom-com in that it's like really small, um, problem EX. I left you at a hospital. Um, and while that's like a larger issue to an extent, like a, a serious thing, it is something that you'd expect in a rom-com. Like, Oh, I heard you talking about someone else's name in another room in a conversation that I heard only the, you know, middle act of, and now I'm going to go and run into the arms of someone else and try to live the life I was going to live before you. It has that feel to it. And again, that third act, like sudden forgiveness, but because it ends on that, it really is like, does he change as a person? Like he's coming to terms with more of himself, I guess, throughout the film. Um, but like, we don't know if he actually does get a shrink at all by the end of this. We know he's walked away from like the phone line that he's been trying to get rid of calling him for half the movie now, but that wasn't really an issue 
with the relationship. It was just an unhealthy way for him to try and find uh partnership. Right. Yeah. And, and I, well, there's also, yeah, that, not to, I don't want to talk in circles, but yeah, the fact that the like, fact that the thing I do ideas. like is the fact that she says what mattered more to me. So it's like, it's a mix, it's a mixed bag, frankly, because she does say it mattered more to me that you weren't, that you left me at the hospital. Then that you went to get mm-hmm. revenge. She was basically saying, like, I don't want you to be this violent person that goes after revenge. I care more about you staying with me, which is good. That's a good thing to tell him. But we also see him telling her, as if it's the most romantic thing in the world, I'm going to stay loyal to you. I will use all of my frequent flyer miles, and I will follow you around everywhere you go on your work trips. Like, this is not romantic. This is (laughs) – that is cringy, Mm -hmm. honestly. That is, like, very – um, obsessive and like mm-hmm. clingy behavior that scares me to death <laughs> about like mm-hmm. your inability to be in a relationship. And maybe it's, I, I yeah, we'll just, I, we don't know because mm-hmm. it's left unsaid. I just, I guess I just would have liked a more, to me, hopeful ending than what we got. I, I was left with something that I felt like was just going to fall apart, which in hindsight then doesn't allow me to fully, get as excited and have those sweet emotions that I tend to in rom-coms because I don't believe in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's get to the last question here. Cool. Does this deserve its status uh, as a popular film, as a, if some people may say like a classic of the two thousands era, is this worthy of how much hype it has? I'm going to say it is absolutely a film that anyone who has a remote interest in the understanding of how masterful movies can be constructed needs to see because of the uniqueness of it. And because of Paul Thomas Anderson's just great mastery over all of these different elements from a directing standpoint, I do not think it is the best movie in his filmography. I do not think it is one of the best movies ever made. I do not think it's the best rom-com ever. I've seen lots of people say that. Obviously, the reasons I've stated multiple times, I just have issues with the script. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it is anywhere near a masterpiece because of the script, but I think everything else, every other element of the film is really just incredibly well done. I'm so glad that this got me to watch it being able to talk about it with you because I I needed to see it and I respect so much about it. So I I think it's worthy of being talked about. It's worthy of being examined and seen and explored, but I don't think it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to second your opinion on that Um, for much of the same reasons. I think while its direction's really good, the performances are all pretty fun. Um, Adam Sandler clearly has the most to do with in this script, and everyone else kind of gets to be um, a one-dimensional character to reinforce that, and are pretty fun in their way of doing it. Like, there's not a bad performance here. Um, it's just, yeah, a script that leaves a lot of open-ended elements that probably shouldn't have, a script that is pretty challenging and you have to really wrestle through on ideas and such. But 
the momentary emotions of this are so strong and you get in that headspace in ways that I'm like, yeah, this is a must watch. If you like film, if you like PTA, this isn't a bad movie. It's really well-made film. Um, You should be watching it. And I think it's pretty accessible too. Like Silence of the Lambs, I'm like, it's a very good movie, but you might be like kind of scared. This, I'm like, okay, you probably are like mid-teenage years because it does touch on uh, some mature topics like sex and such, which most rom-coms do anyway. Um, But, and, and extreme violence, but I'm like, it's very accessible. And if you have any passion for film and filmmaking, must watch. I think, yeah, it's, it's earned its place as a cultural zeitgeist, at least on Twitter, and it should be examined. I'm well, thank you so much for being here, Aaron. Um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to mostly call this a day, I think. Uh, this episode was a f- blast to make. I had a lot of fun watching this movie. And yeah, where can the people find you on uh, Twitter? And any last thoughts? Um, yeah, just thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I love what you're doing. I'm anxious to see what you think of the rest of PTA's filmography when you get to it, because you clearly can see the craft and there's not a single film he's made that doesn't have that at the very, very least. And so it'll be interesting to watch because this is definitely kind of a standalone in his filmography. Like this and licorice pizza is probably the, maybe the closest thing to it. Maybe, maybe Boogie Nights, but there's a lot of differences in the way that he has made stuff. So, anywho, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and on Letterboxd and basically everywhere using Aaron L. White. That's A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. The podcast is Feelin' apostrophe film, and the Twitter account for that is Feelin' film, and you can find us anywhere. We've been around a long time, and the podcast feed is everywhere you can imagine. And there's a YouTube channel with some new content there covering the rings of power and some other fun stuff. Yeah. would love to have people check it out. All right. And I've been your host, Benjamin Weeb uh, at Ninja underscore Neb. You can follow the blind, uh, blind spot film podcast at spot fi- uh, film pod. That's at S P O T F I L M P O D on Twitter. Um, thank you all for watching, or I guess listening, not watching. There is no video portion of this available at the time. And uh, enjoy your day.